Happy Mother's Day. Don't say that back. It's weird. I trapped you. But truly, happy Mother's Day. Um, my first sermon that I ever gave, I was 19 or 20 years old. And, of course, I was 19 or 20, like, living in a different state and not really thinking probably too much about my mom at that point. Um, and so I preached on the wrath of God. And uh, the pastor comes up and he's like, dude, it was Mother's Day. I'm like, you didn't tell me that. Like, that would have been great to know. And then last year, uh, the text was David and Goliath. Remember when uh, David basically sawed off Goliath's head, like picked up the head, brought it to Saul, carried it with him for a bunch of years of his life. And uh, every year on Mother's Day, there's some kind of message that is just over the top. And so I think this year, um, it's a little tamer. I just want to encourage you moms. And uh, I want to take a minute and I want to share with you a verse before we jump into our sermon today. And uh, the verse was one that Angelica shared yesterday at Lisa for House Alt Service. Yesterday we had a celebration of life service for Lisa. She went to be with the Lord last month, and it was absolutely beautiful, just as a testimony of her um, witness. I mean, this place was jam-packed. It was just an absolutely beautiful um, morning. But she shared a verse, and I think this verse so beautifully sums up why we have Mother's Day and what we do with it. And it's from Proverbs 31, verse 26 and 28. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. Amen, husbands? That was so weak. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. There you guys are awesome. And he praises her. Um, I'll be honest. Mother's Day is one of the most loaded holidays because, um, you know, if I were to sit here and say, how many of you have struggled with infertility? More hands than you would really want to know would go right up. If I were to say to you, raise your hand. Don't do this, but raise your hand if your mom... Um, is with the Lord or has passed away. I mean, the amount of hands in this room that would be raised would be pretty overwhelming. Um, If I were to say, raise your hand if uh, you do not have a legal mom that you look up to um, or that was a good mom in any way, there are more hands that would go up than I think we would care to really know. And so Mother's Day becomes one of these very tense mornings because sometimes in churches, for example, they'll say, stand up and give your mom a hug. And then there's a whole bunch of people who genuinely just wish they had a mom to give a hug to. Um, I think God has been very gracious to people because what I found in the church is that many who have not had a biological legal mom that has been that for them, I think the Lord in his mercy brings along spiritual mothers who come alongside of you and care for you. And God has wired us to need mothers, that nurturing care. And so the Lord has just been very gracious to many of you. And yet there are still some of you who maybe you're kind of new to the church and maybe you just have this huge hole in your heart and you're like, God, I would just love to have a nurturing mother in my life. And uh, so this morning, what I want to do, just very simple, it's going to be a little different, is we're going to have a moment. I want to ask you in silence just to talk to God. And I want to ask you to talk to God about a couple things. So if you have a mom that you can thank God for, I want you to just talk to him, and I want you to thank him. And I want you to think about all of the ways that if she were here or is here, that you would just praise her and thank her for who God has made her to be. Um, If you um, are just desperately wanting a spiritual mom, I want to encourage you, go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bring you someone who can be a spiritual mother to you. That is a huge deal, by the way. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you fully realize that those of you who have had moms, like that force in someone's life is more powerful than you can recognize. And maybe you're struggling with infertility and you're just desperate. This is an opportunity just to go before the Lord and say, please, please. And I um, also want to encourage you, you know, I know with particularly as we remember Lisa, as many of you have lost your moms, uh, this is an awesome day to carry on their legacy and to remember them. Uh, If you have kids or great-grandkids, this is an awesome time to talk about your moms and the things that they did for you and how they loved you and served you well. Um, And that legacy can carry on for generations and generations. It really can be a beautiful day, but let's take a moment. Let's go before the Lord, and let's just talk to him privately.
Father, my prayer is just it's very um, simple. God, for those of us who um, just have good moms, spiritual or legal moms, God, I pray that your spirit would well up gratitude in us. I pray, God, that you'd bring to remembrance just really how amazing and sacrificial and life-giving they've truly been for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to speak the words that we need to say to our moms so that we can rise up and call them blessed. Lord, I pray for those who have lost their mommies, and I pray that, Lord, this would be a day where they can lean into you and they can appreciate the spiritual moms in their life but also carry on the legacy of their mom by talking about how amazing of a nurturer she may have been. Lord, this is a day where no mom, no dad, none of us ever do anything perfectly, but this is a day where grace abounds. And God, I pray that this would be a day where we could really um, honor one of the greatest, most sacrificial positions in life, that being a mom. And so, Lord, we are truly, truly grateful that even for those of us in this room who may have had negligent mothers or absent moms, that you, by your spirit and through your church, can meet any void in our heart. I thank you that you are more than enough. And so, God, I pray that we would lean into you, especially on a day like this, in more profound ways than maybe we even knew possible. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for our moms, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen, amen, amen. We are starting our series on the divided kings. The first king that we looked at was King... Saul. Second king was king. Third king was king. Solomon. Awesome. This morning, we're going to meet Solomon's only son. His name is Rehoboam. Terrible name. Don't name your children that. Rehoboam. And uh, as we, before we get into this, I want to share with you a word. Uh, it's a simple word. I want to define the word and explain the word. It's a word you all know, but I want to help you understand a facet of what we call spiritual growth or spiritual formation or spiritual maturity and how really relevant this one word is to it, okay? So the word is going to blow your mind, right? And here's the word. You ready? Trajectory. I know that was amazing, isn't it? You're like, what are you talking about? The word is trajectory. I want to define it for you. It's the path of an object moving under the action of given forces. The path of an object moving under the action of given of given forces. So that with every object that is in motion, there, there are given forces that are pushing it in one way or another. In the general direction it's going in light of the given forces that it's going, it's called your trajectory. Gosh, you guys are so smart. It's like you're paying attention. So I want you to catch this. For every Christian at any given moment, there is a primary force controlling the trajectory of your spiritual Life At any moment for a Christian, there is a primary force pulling the trajectory of your spiritual life. And I want to share with you, in, according to Scripture, what are the two primary forces that are tugging at um, our spiritual trajectory, okay? Inside of each of us is our spirit, not the spirit, but our spirit, and there's our flesh. And these two things seem to be at battle with each other in a pretty profound way. There's a powerful tension between these two things. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to imagine you stepped back and you just went into autopilot mode and your spirit <clears throat> and your flesh were to duke it out, Mayweather Pacquiao style, right? Who's going to win? Not the spirit. I'm talking about your spirit versus your flesh. If they went to duke it out, let me tell you this, your flesh will win every single time. This is huge, okay? Your flesh will be the driving force in the trajectory of your spiritual life, okay? So if you let your spirit and your flesh dictate the outcome of your relationship with God, it will always move in the trajectory of flesh, not in the trajectory of the things of God. It's very important to understand this. Jesus says, okay, they're in the garden. He says, look, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is, say with me, weak. But he means by weak is saying this, is that your flesh, right, is actually stronger than what your spirit is. He's saying you have good intentions, but because of the brokenness of your flesh, when the two of them go at each other, your flesh wins. And so if you go on spiritual autopilot and you walk away from pursuing God, who wins? The intentions and the hopes of your spirit or the power of your flesh? You can say flesh. Your flesh, right? It's a little principle. I want to illustrate this now. 
um, for you. Give you a principle, illustrate. The principle is this. Unless you are actively attacking your flesh, your default trajectory of your spiritual life will be toward your flesh. Unless you're actively attacking it, that will be the default trajectory. So here's the illustration. How many of you are homeowners with a lawn? Raise your hand. I am not yet. Okay, so May 29th, we move into a new house. Um, Here's what I know. It's dandelion season. And those little suckers are evil, right? Can I get an amen on that one, right? Any homeowner, right? If you like dandelions, it's because you don't own a home with grass, okay? So you're driving down the road, you're driving, we're in a neighborhood, and it's like dandelion infested lawn after dandelion infested lawn after dandelion infested lawn, and then there is this beautiful patch of green grass called the G and Papa's home. If you ever go to their house, it's like perfectly green, infestation on every side of them, and then it's just perfect, right? And the reason it's green is because they have put a lot of work into making sure those dandelions are dead. Can I get an amen, Sam G and Papa, right? I came over to his house. He's sweating. He's got grass all over him, pristine and beautiful, right? Here's the deal. If you walk away from your lawn in the battle of grass versus dandelion, who wins every single time? Dandelion. And it is hard work. All hard things, all things that are great in life are difficult and they take work And this is the default of your flesh and your spirit. Your spirit has so many intentions and desires. And then you wake up in the morning and it hits into the wall of your flesh. You're like, I'll hit the snooze button. I'll try it again. I'll get to that later. In the battle, your flesh wins unless you are actively, proactively going at it. So apparently right now we're in dandelion season. The dandelions are dying, putting their little seeds everywhere. And then in like a month, there's a whole new set of weeds that come up, right? And you need to attack those with a different kind of fertilizer. And then those ones die. And then at the end of the summer, a whole new set comes up. And it's like, it is constant maintenance to get a a yard to look as good as the GM Papa's. And so all all you see is, is that in this battle, the flesh wins unless we're actively, regularly going after it. All things tend towards chaos and disorder, and that is the same with our souls if left untended. Now, i got to make a clarification in case some of you don't understand me clearly. Salvation is free. It is by grace. It is not by works. Do you have to do anything to earn your salvation? Everybody just say flat out, no way. No, not at all, okay? Salvation is free. It is not by works. If you're here and you're trying to earn your way to heaven, you are flat wrong. I love you so much that I want you to know that. The Bible says stop trying. You will never do it. It's like crossing the ocean and trying to swim across. You'll never get there. But Jesus has paid the price for your sins for you in your place. So you can stop striving to earn that and you can rest in what he's done for you. Now, salvation, free. Intimacy with God, hard work. Okay? You can get saved by grace through faith and not by works and walk away. And if you walk away from that and you leave your spiritual life to the battle of your intentions and your spirit versus your flesh, what's going to happen to your spiritual life and your intimacy? It will plummet and you will never grow. And, and this is why the person who attacks their flesh on a daily basis will be the one that has a weed-free lawn, a weed-free soul, so to speak. Now, King David... Don't turn here. First Chronicles twenty two nineteen. He's on his deathbed. He looks at his son Solomon, and here's what he says to him. Solomon, now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Is God lost? No, not at all. God's not lost. But here's what David knows. David has lived long enough to know this. Solomon, if you don't set your mind, and your heart to seek after God, you will turn to evil. Okay? This is, this is the rhythm. Okay? You can't escape it. The weeds of your soul will grow, and they will stifle and consume your life. So- Solomon, you're about to be the king of the most important nation that has ever lived. Solomon, you've you got to catch this. You're the prince. You are an entitled heir. You've had everything given to you on a silver platter. Your tendency is going to ride off of my obedience and to inherit the blessings I've given you and just live off of that. You can go into autopilot and probably live many years pretty wealthy and opulent, but I'm telling you this, you need right now to set your heart and your mind to seek after the Lord. Because if you don't, evil is coming. A little bit later in First Chronicles 28.9, the 
final words that David says to Solomon. He says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Why is David concerned? He understands the principle of trajectory. He understands the tension between the spirit of a man and the flesh of the man. When the two go to battle, the flesh wins unless you are actively attacking your flesh. The soul untended is filled with weeds. So in light of this, Let's meet the next king in the lineage of David. His name is Rehoboam. He is the only son of Solomon that we know of. He was 41 years old when he took over. And he, for his entire conscious life, from 1 to 41, watched his dad reign over the nation of Israel. Okay? He watched his dad start off strong and fail miserably. Um, Rehoboam was not just raised by a very compromised dad, but he was raised by an Ammonite mother, which means this. The text goes out of its way to tell you that she was a foreign woman. Um, She was a foreign woman who worshipped Ammonite gods who were disgusting and did revolting things, and he was raised in a spiritually, we'll just say, turbulent environment with a dad who said one thing and did another, and a mom who was worshipping false idols who were doing grotesque things. And so we find here is that he has a very confusing childhood. Um, he's actually, I mean, how unique is this? He has given almost an entire book of the Bible written to him. I mean, the book of Proverbs is primarily written by Solomon, and it is addressed to his son. It's almost like Solomon knew the tendencies and trajectories of our flesh. And so he wrote pleading with his kid, listen to my advice, listen to my advice, don't forsake my advice. And what did his son do? His son trampled his advice walked all over and went the opposite direction. And it's so hard to watch. This is a great little one-liner for you. Your half heart is the next generation's no heart. And I just... His epitaph, Rehoboam, started at the very end of his life. Here's what it said. This is the summary of his life. You can break everything he did or did not do down to this one sentence. And he did evil. Why? For he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And the principle that David gets, that we get now, is very simply this. If you do not actively set your heart to seek the Lord, you will do evil. You will do evil. Now, you will step back and say, but I'm not as evil or bad as the person next to me, so it's okay. And before God, your point of reference is not the person next to you. It's not the person in your work or your school or whatever else in your neighborhood. The point of reference is Jesus, okay? It's the word of God that flows from his mouth. So uh, you need to understand this, that you may convince yourself you're good because you're better than the people next to you. But hear me, the person who does not set his heart to seek the Lord will begin a trajectory toward evil. And we'll do that, and we're going to watch this play itself in Rehoboam's life. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. We need to set the context here to make sense of what's going on here. 1 Kings 11, verse 9. As you're turning there, what does God want from Rehoboam? His heart. That's what he wants. We went from David's whole heart to Solomon's half-heart, to Rehoboam's no heart. First Kings chapter 11, verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning the thing that he should not go after other gods. I mean, the Lord saw Solomon's wickedness and tendency towards foolishness and evil and idolatry, and the Lord intervened in his life two times to warn him, and Solomon did it anyway. Wouldn't you like to think if the Lord came into your life and like made it absolutely clear as him, either in a dream or physically, and he looked at you and said, stop it? You think you'd stop it? You'd hope you would, right? But for Solomon, he had two of these experiences, and he keeps doing dumb things. So how do you know if the heart 
has turned away from the Lord. Here's what it says. He did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, this is going to set the entire context for Rehoboam, since, the, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. His servant's name is Jeroboam. Put that name in your brain. We'll come back to it. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, I, I, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Solomon's son's name is Rehoboam. You guys are good. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. Now, God probably should have entered into Solomon's life and taken the kingdom from him because of his massive, disgusting idolatry. But God made a promise to David that his son would reign as long as he lived. And so because God always keeps his word, he could not take the kingdom from Solomon. But he made a promise to Solomon, your son will inherit your mess. And I will rip this kingdom from him. And everyone will know it's because of your sin. And so God was very, very, very clear about this. And we'll go to point one in your notes. We're in 1 Kings now, chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem. It's in the middle of Israel. It's kind of a political, um, neutral place. This is the place where they would go to crown kings. And we'll find here that everyone's going to come over to meet him there. For all Israel had come to Shechem, to make him the king. What was the intention of the nation of Israel? To make him the king. This is the intention, okay? Um, but I want you to get something here. This, all of these events are happening on his first day as king. Like, imagine this is your first day of leadership, right? You're in charge. This is what happens. Verse 2, as soon as Jeroboam, remember him? Okay, Jeroboam, some context. Jeroboam was um, a servant of Solomon, Rehoboam's dad. Uh, Jeroboam was loved by the people. Everybody loved Jeroboam. Jeroboam became a threat to Solomon. Solomon tried to kill him, so Jeroboam ran away to Egypt. And Jeroboam has been living in Egypt, waiting for Solomon to die. So as soon as Solomon is dead, who's coming back to, to Israel? Jeroboam, okay? Um, so here, here's what we get. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, Solomon's death, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent the people and called him Jeroboam. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, here's the, here's the point. They're all meeting in Shechem. Rehoboam is like, I'm 41 years old. It's about time. I've been waiting to be the leader. I can't wait. All of Israel calls up Jeroboam, who they love, whom his dad tried to kill. Bring him. Jeroboam is a great politician. And now he is the spokesman for the people. And Jeroboam is about to make some demands, okay? They're not just going to let Rehoboam come and lead and make it easy for him. And so here's um, what happens. Verse 4. Jeroboam, in behalf of the people, says, Your father made our yoke heavy, which means they had incredibly high taxes. Everyone from Illinois, give me an amen. amen. Whew, right? Our yoke is heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father, which, by the way, the hard service is Solomon is building palaces and temples and forests and crazy things and opulent buildings. Solomon's bored, and he's doing it with the money of the Israelites on, on the backs of their labor. And they are working and working and working. I mean, somebody's got to house 700 princess wives and 300 concubines and serve them like princesses and make their food and clean up after them and shower them and bathe. The list goes on and on. And the Israelites were doing all of Solomon's dirty work. Solomon had built this entire empire on the taxes and labor of the back of his people. The people are frustrated. Imagine your, um, your dad or your husband is having to leave for three, four, six, eight months to build a, uh, a home for a princess who is worshiping false idols for your king. I mean, you can imagine the frustration of the people. Little kids saying, where's dad? Is he coming home this week? No, he'll be home in six months when they're done with the project across the nation. And everybody's frustrated, and understandably so. So he says this, uh, now therefore, we're in the middle of verse 4, now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Okay. What do you do? Lighten the taxes. Again, Illinoisans, give me an amen here, right? Lighten the taxes, and we will reelect you. <laughs> we will serve you. 
we will be faithful, okay? Give us a little break. Like, how about this, Rehoboam? Do better than your dad and lead your people. Love your people. Care for your people. And we'll follow you. Simple answer. So here's what he said in verse 5. He said, go away for three days and then come again to me. So the people went away. So what is Rehoboam thinking? Tell you what he's thinking. You think I'm weak? Do you think you, on my coronation day, can come to me and you can tell me what to do and make demands? I am the king. Okay? Do you understand me? My dad is Solomon. Right? I choose to let you live. I mean, this is, this is an entitled little brat. You've got to get this. Okay? Um, if you ever meet, like, a prince, okay? a real prince, okay? who is in some authoritarian dictatorship, we'll say, oh, I don't know, North Korea, right? Um, like, they're not exactly the most humble people on the planet, okay? Like, who, who are you to talk to me, right? So anyways, um, you can kind of start to understand, like, nobody disrespects me. So there's a protocol you follow. Okay, I'm the new king. All my dad's advisors are here. Let's go see what they say. Verse 6, Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer the people? Verse 7, And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Dude, it's a no-brainer. You have more than you could possibly imagine. But what does every kid want to do, right? David builds this great empire. Solomon makes it better. I mean, do you really want to be the king, right, that's going to shrink the empire? No, I got to do better than my dad's. I got to do better than my grandpa. So overcompensating. It's just kind of frustrating to read. But he abandoned, literally forsook, trampled upon the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. So young men literally means little boys. These young men, these little boys, um, how old are they? Late 30s, early 40s. Are they little boys? No. The author wants you to understand something. These are entire, entitled mid-40 adolescents. That's what they are. Okay? They have not grown up. They have not had to work a day in their life. They are entitled beyond anything you can imagine. And now they step back and they're like, nobody disrespects you. Like, nobody, nobody takes from you. And so what are they threatened with? Let's be straight here for a moment, okay? Less taxes equals what? Less money, Okay? And who has been living off of Rehoboam and Solomon's money? All the princes, okay? Right? If the people stop working for them, okay, less people to serve them, less income to spend, less opulence, okay? They do not want the people to stop taxing. In fact, they want more money. And after all, Rehoboam, you're the king. You do what you want, get what you want. Nobody is anticipating what's going to happen next. Nobody is. And so these arrogant little boys entitled post-adolescent, mid-adolescent men. Very frustrating to watch them. And so here's what he said to them. What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke of your father that he put on us in verse 10. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And by thighs, it doesn't mean thighs. Ask him about that later. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. They think this is a good idea. Okay? Can you say entitled? Right? Brats or short. These are 41-year-old men. And they're just looking at all of their standard of living and say, what is being threatened here is our standard of living. Um, we cannot afford this. And Rehoboam, he hears this, and he says, great idea. I think I'm going to do that. After all, I am the man. Somebody once said, show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. So, so truthful. Verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again on the third day, verse 13. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking, forsaking, abandoning, trampling upon the counsel that the old men had given him. And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, 
My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. I mean, process this with me for a moment. What took David and Solomon 80 years to build, he dismantled in three days. Three days. First day on the job, threat. Third day on the job, divided nation. Now watch what happens. This thing just unravels before him. Verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people. Love this line, listen. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, okay? What was the turn of affairs? Somebody after the first service asked me a great question. And they said, uh, if Rehoboam answered well, would the kingdom have still been divided? And Vilshur's answer is yes, because God promised that it would be divided. But here's what Rehoboam gave up the ability to lead well to the glory of God, a small nation. So I want you to catch this. God did not destine Rehoboam to be a terrible leader. God destined Rehoboam to be a leader of a small, insignificant nation for a period of time. That's what he destined him to. Rehoboam, because he did not seek with his heart the Lord, he became an evil leader. That's what he became. He surrounded himself with ridiculous people, and he created a civil war. What could have happened to the divided kingdom if he would have honored the people? Here's what I think would have happened. Here's what we know from Solomon's reign, especially the, the more north you get in the kingdom of Israel. False gods, idol worship all over the place. These people have most likely already chosen Jeroboam to be their king. Most likely they're already going to secede anyway because they are done with Solomon's taxes and forced labor. Okay? Most likely, God had already welled up and seen in these people that they're going to leave anyways. But they did not have to leave in a civil war, which is what is about to happen. And so we get to this point where like, what could have happened, would have happened, we don't know. But here's what we know. Rehoboam did not need to sin against his people in this way. And because he did this, the rest of his life just gets more and more difficult. Verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David, which is Rehoboam's grandpa? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, Rehoboam's great-grandpa. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house. And now we find the divided kingdom, and they're going to inaugurate a new king for themselves. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the city, cities of Judah. Verse 18, then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was the taskmaster over forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So what do you do as a king when there's a rebellion? You send your taskmaster with heavy whips, and you control them. And what did the people do? They killed the taskmaster. How do you think a prideful, middle-aged, adolescent child is going to process this event? This is like pure disrespect, right? overcompensating kid is going to be filled with massive rage. I mean, this is like, this is a real deal here. And uh, I don't think they understood what was happening. I don't think he understood, but he almost dies. So they almost kill Rehoboam. He gets out. It says verse 19, so Israel, Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and they made Jeroboam the king over Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. What do you do with this disrespect? You go to war. And in the following verses, that's exactly what he does. They get hundreds of thousands of warriors. They are about to embark upon a civil war between the north and the south. And God sends a prophet and says, look, you can be upset at each other about how dumb you are to each other and how ridiculous Rehoboam is, but the division of your nations is from me. I divided this nation. Go home and stop battling. I'm going to show the picture. This is a picture of the northern and southern kingdom. You have northern in, uh, kingdom called Israel. And so 11 of the tribes or 10 of the tribes, depending how you count, but majority of the tribes are in the north. And they now are a new nation with a new king, Jeroboam. And this is the northern kingdom called Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. In the southern kingdom, uh, their capital is Jerusalem. Their king is Rehoboam. And these two, north and south, are going to be at civil war now for decades and centuries to come. It's a sad, sad sight, but now we have a divided nation and Rehoboam, everything this guy touches falls apart because he doesn't follow the Lord. It's very frustrating. And your notes, number two, the trajectory of a heart not set to seek the Lord degenerates to idolatry. 
in 2 Corinthians 11, the book of uh, Chronicles, I'm sorry, the book of Chronicles and Kings overlap. They tell the stories of the same kings, but from a little different perspective. And here's what happens in 2 Chronicles 11, verse 16. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord, do you see how important that phrase is? Those who set their hearts to seek the Lord. The God of Israel came after them from the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. So there are all of these people faithful to God in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they come down and they live in Judah, and they are faithful to God. They're seeking God with their whole hearts. But then some interesting things happen. In verse 17, I want you to pay attention to the word they. I say the word they, or it's in your text. Just listen carefully. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years, they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Why did God preserve and make strong the reign of Rehoboam for three years? Was it because Rehoboam was a good guy? It was because of they. This interesting little principle as God deals with nations is that the they or the remnant or the few that set apart their heart to worship God are oftentimes enough reason to, for God to preserve a nation for a season of time. It's an interesting perspective here, but the only reason God preserved the nation for how many years? Three years was because of they. But then after three years, something happened. And Second Chronicles 12.1 says this, when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong after three years, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. After three years, they gave in. After three years, they, who were seeking the Lord with their whole heart, buckled under the pressure of the national and cultural idolatry. And at that point, you know what the Lord did in light of this idolatry? He steps back. And he gives them over to themselves. And we're going to watch this unfold and unravel. 1 Kings 14, chapter 14, verse 22, picks up the story. Here's what it says. And Judah, the southern kingdom, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the they for three years and the rest of the nation. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done, for they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there was also, catch this, male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. I mean, this is actually very profound because the they, right? You think that they would be enduring and faithful, but when the they stopped setting their face to seek the Lord with their whole heart, you know what happened to the they? They became just like everybody else because this is the principle of trajectory. When you're attacking your flesh, your trajectory will be positive toward the Lord, but when you go on autopilot, right, then who wins? Your flesh. And here's what happened. When they became secure, that's when they became compromised. And this is a mind-blowing concept here. When they became secure, when everything was good, then they gave in, okay? And I, I, honestly, I'm like, wow, Lord, like, is this a word for us? For, verse 25, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. This one-liner is just great. He took away everything. You remember how much wealth and opulence Solomon built? Gone. Totally gone. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. I mean, for the rest of his life, he was reminded that he has been taxed by Egypt. And that he has taken, everything that has been taken away from him is now in a foreign land. He receives a united, opulent nation. And it, under his leadership, disintegrates to a divided nation, completely broke under the heavy hand of Egypt. So sad. So what's the point? Why is this here? Three reasons, three points, three so what's. Number one, 
When a king walks away from God, the nation follows. You can look in scripture, it's just there. You look at our country, it's there. You look at nations all around the world, read some history books. When a king, when a leader walks away from God, the nation inevitably follows. It's enormous. And here's what you need to know. The they can persevere for a while, but if the they stop setting their heart to seek the Lord, what will happen to them? They will become just like the culture. Just like the culture. And so you are in a corrupt world, whether you like it or not. America's an amazing place, right? But you're in a corrupt land. And as the world becomes more corrupt, as leaders become more corrupt, the nation will follow. Whether it is a, a, a dictatorship or a democracy, it doesn't matter. When the leaders become corrupt, the nation follows suit. And so you need to ask yourself, are you part of the nation or are you part of the they? And if you're part of the they, you need to understand that your ability to be corrupted is powerful. Your ability to be compromised once things are safe is powerful. When a king walks away from God, the nation follows. Number two, when a nation walks away from God, God walks away from the nation. God steps back, and here's what it means. He gives the nation over to its own devices and wisdom and says, have at it. And into the rhythm of creation is destruction for those who don't play by God's rules. And so when a nation walks away from God, God steps back and says, have at it. Do your thing. But number three, and this is where I want to land with you. When a dad walks away from God, the children follow. How did we get from David, whole heart, Solomon, half heart, to Rehoboam, no heart. What one generation assumes, the next ignores. What one generation ignores, the next rejects. In three generations, you can watch a passionate, God-honoring family. In three generations, you can watch it go to rejecting blatantly, outright the name of Jesus Christ very quickly. Because what one generation assumes, what will the next do? Neglect. And what one generation neglects, the next will reject. It is a principle seen all throughout our world, all throughout Scripture. And what you're watching in this is the degeneration of families that take for granted their relationship with God. So David looks at Solomon and pleads with him. And he says, seek the Lord with your whole heart. Like, you can't not do this. And Solomon says, yeah, 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 yeah. Because let's be honest, okay? Even though David was a man after God's own heart, especially in the latter years of his life, what spoke a little bit more loudly, his words or his actions? His actions, okay? So you can say all you want, right? But if your actions don't back up your words, statistically speaking, what are kids going to imitate? Your actions, not your words. So Solomon writes this beautiful book to his son Rehoboam, but he doesn't back it up. He doesn't live by it. The wisest man in the world lives like a fool. And so Rehoboam has all of this knowledge, all of this information, and what does he do to it? He doesn't just neglect it. He absolutely outright rejects it and commits his life to evil because he did not imitate his dad's words, but imitated his dad's actions. So sad. Solomon receives a kingdom from his dad, and his dad gets up and gives him this beautiful monologue. Solomon gives away his kingdom to his son, and you know what he says? Nothing. So I, I want to draw this home for you. I think the most concerning... Um, people where this could happen will be kids who grew up in a strong Christian home. I want to tell you why. Because moms and dads, maybe you came to Christ in your 20s or 30s, and you remember what it was like to be a slave to sin. You remember what it was like before Jesus, right? And you came to him, and you are passionate about it. So you grow, you, you raise these kids, and you're telling them about Jesus from the time they're little, 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 little. And they grow up, and they just assume this is normal. They just assume it's normal. And we're like, you know what? Our kids are good. Everything's fine. And they grow up and they assume it's normal. And then the generation that comes after them, you know what they do? They just kind of neglect it. They just kind of neglect it. But let me, let me show you how this is supposed to be different. A mom and dad come to Jesus Christ. 
right? And they are familiar with their testimony and their story, and they know the tendency of the heart is to pursue the flesh, and the spirit is very, very weak in this battle against the flesh. And so a mom and dad regularly grew up and saying to the kids, don't just assume things are good because we're reading the Bible every night, children. You need to understand the power of your flesh. You need to seek daily after the Lord's heart. Like, this isn't something you can go on autopilot, because if you go on autopilot, you're going to lose, and you're going to end up in foolishness and idolatry, and you'll have an epitaph like Rehoboam, which is, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So you get your kids and you're like, kids, it's not enough to be in a Christian school and to go to church every week. You need to set your heart on the Lord to seek him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. And then when your kids grow up, you're telling them this regularly. You're telling them your story. Here's what life is like apart from Jesus. And then your kids grow up and they have kids and you say to them, You tell those kids from the moment they can understand anything, seek the Lord because the flesh is strong, culture is evil, and like you need to understand, like you got to train them and train them. So here's what happens. We don't tell our kids this with urgency, so they assume it. And one generation's assumption becomes the next generation's neglect. And that generation's neglect, they raise kids who all on, full out, reject the name of Jesus. Statistically speaking, that's the rhythm, okay? Um, Now, Again, some of you, you pleaded with your kids, you begged, you prayed, and they still rejected Jesus Christ. I'm not saying this is the law of the universe. I'm saying it's the rhythm of the universe. I'm saying it is the way God has wired things to happen. You have one dad's whole heart followed by a son's, half heart followed by a son's, no heart. And I don't think David or Solomon understood that in light of their disobedience, that their nation would become divided and that they would become so thoroughly corrupt that God would take the entire nation, the north and the south, and send them to slavery for hundreds of years and that they would not be a people group in a land again until 1948. Do you think they had that in their minds when they were compromising with idolatry some 3,000 years ago? They didn't have that at all in their minds. And the trickle-down effect was beyond their comprehension. But this is why we say there's too much at stake to be half-hearted. There's too much at stake to be dumb, to be disinterested. There's too much at stake to not seek the Lord with your whole heart. Because what is at stake and what we see in Scripture are the generations that follow. Now, some of you, I want to I swing to the other side so we can just be really clear. Some of you have made massive mistakes, right? And you're going to be tempted to leave this sermon and say, I'm such a bad person. And if you leave with that spirit, I want you to know you've missed the point, okay? You've totally missed the point. If you're that person, this might be the season of your life. You might be a great grandpa or grandma. You might just be a brand new dad. I don't know where you're at. But this is the season not to beat yourself up because if the Lord is giving you repentance now, take it and repent. Change. Apologize where you need to apologize. And at the end of the day, here's something you need to understand. Though statistically speaking, okay, dads and moms who assume faith raise kids who neglect faith, Generally speaking, no child, no Rehoboam will stand before God and say, I'm not responsible because my dad did X or Y. Every child stands on their own before God despite every parent's failures or successes. And every mom and dad in this room, whether you're young or you're old, you know what we're doing right now? We're having regrets. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. There is no perfect mom or dad. Some do worse, some do better, but let me tell you, no kid will stand before God and say, but my dad, and God will say, oh yeah, you're right, your dad was pretty bad. Your mom was really neglectful. That's true. You're not responsible for your sin. No, actually, Rehoboam will stand before Jesus Christ, the judge of the universe, responsible for his own behavior despite what he grew up with and the craziness of the Davidic household. I mean, it was insane. These guys were nuts. Despite the fact that he had 700 stepmoms and 300 prostitutes hanging around his house, like, despite all that, He will not be able to say, I'm not responsible. And so if you leave here and you're like, oh man, um, I have generations below me, I'll be honest, you may have done everything right and you still may have generations underneath you. You don't know why for sure your son or daughter or grandkids or great-grandkids have not followed Jesus. But here's what I do want you to understand. If you have not modeled for them righteousness, repent, apologize, and change, and leave their salvation in the Lord's hands, but pray fervently, share the gospel, plea with them. But here's the deal. You will not stand responsible for their salvation before God. 
they will stand responsible for their salvation before God. So there's a tension here, because the tension is, statistically, right? Parents who assume raise neglectful kids. But I also know the other side of the tension is every kid stands on his own responsible before God. So my rule for you is this. Number one, don't leave here beating yourself up. Every parent beats themselves up. Every parent. You have no idea what God's will for your son or daughter is. You're responsible for repentance for what you did or did not do well. And somehow we need to navigate that tension beautifully and well. Sound good? Welcome to an introduction on the Divided Kings. These guys get more messed up from here, so it's going to be a blast. I want to invite the band up, and we're going to close with a song. Let's pray together. Um, Father, I just, uh, I confess to you that um, apart from the work of your Holy Spirit in us, we would be Ray Bohm. We would just outright reject you, but you have intervened in our lives, and you have saved us. And uh, I'm just so grateful for that. God, I want to just pray a couple of simple short things here. For the moms and dads, old or young, that have regret, I pray that they would lean into your mercy and into your grace. I pray that they would not live a life or spend this day beating themselves up. Lord, we cannot change the past, but we can repent. And so, God, I just pray you would give them an overwhelming peace knowing that you have forgiven them, but also a resolution to make right any things that are wrong. Lord, I also know that this is something that is not something you just do in a day. This is a lifelong process that we all have to go through as moms and dads, continually owning our part and saying sorry when we don't model the kind of righteousness that we want to. And God, I pray for those of us who are kids who might look to our mom and dad and we're using them as an excuse for bitterness and for anger and for our spiritual condition. And I pray, God, we would repent. And God, I pray that the children of this room, whether they are 80 years old or whether they are eight years old, God, that they would understand that we are responsible for our spiritual life before you, tending to that and seeking you. And we cannot blame those before us for our lack of faith. And so God, I pray you would do more than we could ask or imagine. And my big prayer is this, God, that your spirit would motivate us to seek you with our whole heart. Teach us, each one of us individually, what that means. We love you, we thank you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.